day on a Sunday morning. So he had sermon in his back pocket and went for it, and he said that it went very well. He sent me a text message this morning, said that the Spirit moved and a few people came to faith at that service. So it's a really cool ministry opportunity that Andrew's doing out there in Rwanda. Um, so you can continue to pray for him as he's there uh, at this pastor training conference. He's going to be in Rwanda for a little bit longer, and then we'll be seeing him back here next week. So uh, on that note, speaking of prayer, why don't we start off with uh, prayer as we open up God's Word this morning. Lord, we, uh, we're so delighted just to be able to come here this morning and get the opportunity to worship. Um, Lord, it's, we just ask as we open up your scripture, as we dive deep into your word, that your spirit would uh, move in our hearts, Lord, just teach us, give us a, a, a sort of a posture of learning, and uh, Lord, we ask that your spirit would move powerfully, Lord, and soften our hearts and break down barriers. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us, and that we would uh, glorify you in everything that we do and how we approach the text and how we apply it and how we uh, go out of here and live uh, as you would want us to live, Lord. So we ask for your presence here this morning. Just anoint this time uh, with your spirit. We pray this in, in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite movies of all time is 19, the 1971 classic Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay, uh, I love this movie, and I'm sure you probably, many of you have probably seen this movie. It's a classic. It's been around for a long, long time now. Uh, this movie's about a poor boy named Charlie who finds his golden ticket in his Wonka bar. It's a chocolate bar, okay? And he wins a tour of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, this eccentric guy. The factory's just filled with all kinds of incredible stuff, and if you're a kid, this would be like the ultimate place to go, right? So... Here's Charlie, this boy of really humble means. His family's impoverished. The movie opens up, and it shows this tiny one-room house that his family lives in. And uh, he gets to go on this tour. And on the same tour uh, are a number of other really bratty, snotty kids okay, that feel almost like entitled to be there. Like, I, like Willy Wonka, this, this kind of candy guru, should feel privileged to be around me. That's kind of their attitude. Now, if you look at sort of Charlie in the kind of flip side of the coin. He seems to be the only one who expresses any kind of, like, thankfulness. He's the one who sort of feels privileged to be there, like, I shouldn't be here. Uh, he sort of expresses a totally different attitude from these other kids. I mean, Charlie's this boy of humble means. His attitude and his approach is really different. Now, there's something kind of profound about how he approaches this thing. Uh, Charlie realizes his family's background. He knows where he came from. So after all of the other kids have sort of been systematically removed from the factory, it's kind of funny to watch. The only kid who's left is Charlie. Even though he broke the rules, Willy Wonka sees his heart and understands his humility, his gratitude, his thankfulness for being there, and forgives him for breaking the rules. And not only that, but gives him the entire factory. Okay, now you don't have to see the movie because I just spoiled the whole thing. <laughs> but the joy and thankfulness of this kid is just incredible to watch. It's a really cool thing to watch. Now, I bring that up because I think it really matters what attitude we approach life with. It, it makes a huge difference. Not only that, but I think the Bible actually tells us what the proper attitude is for life as a follower of Jesus. And that's what our text is going to talk about today. 
So we're going to look at a passage from Luke 17. Remember, in the middle of this series, Total Transformation in the Book of Luke, we're going to look at a passage from Luke 17 that tells us about Jesus' healing of these 10 guys who have, 10 people who have leprosy. And we're going to see the appropriate response to God's grace. And we're going to look at this in sort of two parts, the sort of Act 1 and Act 2 of this passage. So take your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 17. If you, haven't, uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We've got ones to pass out to you. Uh, in that white-covered Bible, it's going to be on page 749. Page 749. So, okay, let's dive in here. In part one of our text, in part one, we're going to be looking at this miraculous healing, Jesus' gracious healing of ten lepers. And this is going to be found in verses 11 to 14. So let's, let's dive into sort of act one of our text here. Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. It's talking about Jesus. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Okay, let's pause there. Now, remember the context of where we are in Luke's gospel. We're in the middle of his travel narratives, okay? And Jesus is walking on the road to Jerusalem. And uh, I, I actually have a few things to illustrate exactly where we are in, I think the geography of where we are in this text actually makes a big difference. So I love looking at maps. Just bear with me if you don't, because I think it's really interesting, and I also think that it's, it really means something for our text that we're looking at. So let's start off with the whole world, okay? So we all know what this is. This is Earth, flattened out. And that little red dot, that's where Israel is. That's where this story takes place. So go to the next one. This is the sort of the Roman Empire, first century. This is sort of the boundaries of it. And on the far right over there, you can see the province of Judea, the Roman province of Judea, and that's where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are located. So now that's, you can see how it is in relationship to the Mediterranean. Now if you go to the next one, we're zooming in even farther. And this shows you the different sort of three major regions that we talk about in the New Testament. So as you're reading through your New Testament, you're going to hear the words Galilee, Samaria, Judea talked about. And these are their approximate locations. They're kind of regions in the area. So way up north, you have the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus spends a lot of time up there. He does a lot of teaching in Capernaum is one of the cities there in the synagogues. Samaria is in the middle there in between. And it's in that hill country, sort of that yellow and brown area. And then in the south, you have Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. So those arrows are sort of approximately showing you the path that Jesus took to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem, where he's ultimately put to death on the cross. So, as you can see, the path that he takes takes you straight through Samaria. Now, why is that significant? Um, Jesus walks on this road through Samaria, and the Samaritans were this group of people that, uh, in their history, they had been part of the Jewish people and strayed away by by intermarrying with other people. people of other faiths or other uh, ethnic backgrounds. They'd also decided not to go to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple anymore, and they built their own temples, their own altars. So if you're sort of a devout Jew, if you're somebody like Jesus or somebody like Jesus' followers, you would look down with disdain on these people. Like, how could you stray away from God like that? So in order to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem, he has to go right through this region. 
Now, if you're kind of a, a person like Jesus, you might just, maybe a devout Jew would kind of walk through there with their head down. You don't want to make eye contact. Why would you want to talk to these people? So this is the setting that we find ourselves in. Somewhere in between Galilee and Samaria is where Jesus is walking, okay? Now, let's look back at the text that we're in. Jesus walks into a village. He sa- it says in verse 12, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Now, who are these people? And why are they outside the village? Okay? Leprosy uh, is a term that applied to a number of different skin-related diseases. So we don't know exactly what it was, but it could refer to a number of different things. So there are uh, laws in the Old Testament found in, if you want to write these down, it's Leviticus 13 and Numbers 5 is kind of where, a couple places where these are located, where these people who had these skin diseases were labeled with a ritual category called unclean. Okay? We don't have time to dive exactly into what that means. I wish we could. I had this whole chart I had prepared, and I'd be here for like another hour in order to try and like explain that. And I'd love to do it, but there's these two categories of clean and unclean in the Old Testament that I want to just give you a couple sentences to just frame of what we're talking about in this passage. There's the, the, the Old Testament, as it talks about unclean, it's not necessarily talking about sinfulness. Clean and unclean is not talking about whether you're without sin or you're with sin. It's a ritual category that has all kinds of boundaries around it. These skin-related diseases, it's protecting against uh, infection in the rest of the city. It's uh, drawing people away because God has these, sort of the right way to live that is set up. And if, uh, it's, if it's not followed you know, perfectly or if something violates it, there's all these different uh, categories for it. I know it's kind of hard to wrap your minds around and understand, but the main point I want to get across is that unclean and sin don't necessarily equal the same thing, originally in the Old Testament. But by the first century, hundreds of years later, people around Jesus' day had started to equate these diseases with sinfulness, that you had done something wrong to deserve your fate. And that's not necessarily true when you read the Old Testament laws. So, Things had gotten twisted, and Jesus understood this. He understands that these guys didn't necessarily do anything wrong to deserve where they are. And so they're in this marginalized category of society. The the Jews at the time had sort of taken these ritual categories that had to do with, uh, you know, the temple and, and being clean and unclean, and they had sort of turned them into social categories. So now, if you were one of these lepers, you were an outcast in society. And Jesus understands this, and does something incredible in the midst of that. Okay, let's, uh, let's look back at the text that we have here. These men say something incredible to Jesus. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You can just, you can just hear and feel the desperation in their voices. Now, they're totally hopeless And as they see Jesus coming, they maybe have heard about Jesus. They think, man, this guy could help us. So look at Jesus' response. This is where the text gets really quite interesting. Jesus said, he says in verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, that doesn't seem so weird on the surface. But you've got to understand the role of the priest in this whole thing. Now, we're going through a few of the details here. The role of the priest is not to heal people. 
a role of a priest was to diagnose, to, to say and declare someone as unclean, and then to reinstate them and declare them as clean. So it's sort of the priest is the bookends on the whole thing. But they don't do the healing part. So why would Jesus say, without doing anything to these guys, without helping them, go and show yourselves to the priest? They must have looked at him and said, well, but I can't do that. I can't even get near him. I can't even go in the city to get near this guy. But they go anyway. They must have had some kind of faith in Jesus, thinking maybe, well, it's worth a try. We've been desperate for years out here outside of the village, and I guess we'll try it out. I don't know. So the fact that they obeyed means they have some type of faith. Now, clearly a miracle happens. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. I don't know exactly what that means and how it happened, but they must have not gotten a few hundred yards away and something happened and they were clean and cleansed. Their skin diseases are gone. It's a a miracle. That's all we can say about it. It's a miracle. Now, we need to look at now Act 2 of our passage to see the results of that. Now remember, we're looking at this story to see the right response, the the appropriate response to God's grace. So part 2, part 2 of our text, one man returns to thank Jesus. This is found in verses 15 to 19. Okay, let's read. Verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Interesting. So, all of the ten lepers are healed. And it doesn't necessarily say, but it seems like the nine of them continue to go to the priest, as Jesus said. Right? It seems like that's what they would logically do. So, why does this one guy turn around and come to Jesus? I mean, it seemed like he really wanted to praise God. So, why come to Jesus and not go to the priest? Okay, if you understand sort of the framework of how these things work, if you want to offer sacrifice and give thanks to God, you go to the priest and you go to the temple. That's it. That's the one place you go. So this guy turns around and he comes back to Jesus. Look at what he does. You look a little bit more closely at the text here in verses 15 and 16. It says, Praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. This guy gets into a posture and a position of worship at Jesus' feet. You see, he wanted to give praise to God, so he didn't go to the temple. He wanted to worship God, so he returns to Jesus. You can't miss this in the text, okay? He's worshiping Jesus. He is. He's offering a kind of sacrifice of praise to Jesus, rather than going to the priest in the temple. This is a profound change. You see, I think one of the underlying points of this text is that this man recognizes Jesus' divinity, that he is God. He comes to him. Jesus himself even equates it with that. Look in verse 18. He says, Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And here this man is, on his face on the ground, at Jesus' feet, 
giving praise to God. It's quite an amazing picture. Now, Luke goes out of his way to make another point, and it seems sort of almost like plopped right into the middle of our text. Okay, look at, look back here at verse, um, the end of verse 16. It just says in a quick sentence, now he was a Samaritan. That's it. Now he was a Samaritan. Now remember our maps talking about who the Samaritans were? This is another like, important and drastic point that he's making. We don't have a ton of time to dwell on this, but here's why it's significant. This is a jab at the lack of gratefulness of the Jews who already saw themselves as part of God's people. That's what that means. If you're a, sort of a first century Jew, if you're sort of following God's laws, if you think you've got it all together, this would be shameful to see one of those sort of lost and wayward Samaritans exemplifying the type of response Jesus wants. It'd kind of be like Jesus telling a story where the guy you really hate at work, you know, the guy who's always like kissing up to your boss and always looking out for himself, if he was the hero of the story, you would go, oh, that just doesn't sit right. Maybe you have like a sibling who's always rebellious and you always sort of follow the rules and do what you're supposed to do. Maybe that person turns out to be the hero of the story that Jesus tells. Maybe for us as American Christians, maybe it's an Iranian Muslim that is the hero of the story. I mean, that's how drastic. I mean, you look at someone who say, wait a second, that just doesn't sit right. How could that be? You see, that would shock us, and it shocked people who are reading this in the first century. Okay, let's go back to the end of this part two here in verse 19. Jesus said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now, Jesus pronounces some kind of blessing on this man. I want you to see how all these things sort of fit together in this text. It's just incredible to see sort of the, the, the background, the culture, the things that are going on, how what Jesus is doing is sort of, twist, is sort of uh, reversing all of the stuff that's going on here in, in, in their culture. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on this man because of his faith. And it's significant because, remember, this guy didn't go to the priest. He came to Jesus. See, the priest would authenticate your cleanness and reinstate you. This man is being reinstated and authenticating his cleanness. Jesus is doing that work. He goes back to Jesus to offer sacrifice and praise. And Jesus, in turn, says, your faith has made you well. Go, go. Get up and go. Your faith has made you well. Just as the priest would have done. So Jesus is functioning in this role. He is acting as a priest and as God. At the same time, receiving the praise and the glory. And he's receiving the sacrifice. And he's pronouncing this man's cleanness. You see, we can't miss this. Jesus is our ultimate high priest and advocate before God. And he is God's son. Now, this man was a foreigner. I mean, just to drive this point home, this term, look at, so the end of verse 18, was no one found to give him 
return and give praise to God except this foreigner. That same term was inscribed on the gate of the temple in Jerusalem. And it was a sign, there's a plaque that they found that says, on the side of the gate, it says, if any foreigner enters this temple, you will be killed. You're not allowed. Now Jesus says, this foreigner, the exact same term, is coming to me to give praise and worship, to offer a sacrifice of gratitude and of thanks. And I'm pronouncing that his faith has made him well. Something that the priest at the temple could not do. They refused to do it. Jesus is just blowing the categories out of the water. He's saying that, that, that salvation is available now to those whom you thought it was not available. It is available to any and all, even people who are looked at as the outcasts, the people who are down and out, the people who don't belong. That's our story, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's our story. That when we are the outcasts, the ones who turned our back on God, the ones who are lost and wayward, cast off, that God saves us. Now, what makes this man's action so noteworthy? In other words, why is this text in Luke's gospel? That's really what we want to get at. So when you read a passage, it's the ultimate question we want to ask when we read a text. Why is this passage here? What is it saying? Now remember we're in a section of Luke's gospel where it's talking about what it means to be a disciple. Last week we talked about the proper posture for discipleship as being dependence. We talked about the nature of faith and servanthood. So Jesus highlights another aspect of discipleship in this text. And he highlights the aspect of gratitude. Of gratitude. So why is gratitude so important? Let's, let's kind of dive in here and talk about this. Now it's, it's possible that we should probably start with ingratitude. I think that's maybe the best place to start. So it's possible maybe that's the biggest problem for us. So think about it. We live in a place where all of our basic needs are met. Okay? We live in a place where all of our basic needs are met. You just walk up Solano Avenue, and you can, like, I mean, everything you need is right at your fingertips. You know, you just whip out your credit card or your, a little cash, and you can get food, you can get supplies for, to live, you can get whatever, whatever is there. We so easily forget to be thankful about those things. I mean, this isn't anything new. I know that that comes up a lot. We should be thankful more. Sure. That's right. But don't forget, we sometimes feel entitled for more, don't we? I know I do that. You've probably done that. Sometimes we walk around in a huff because things aren't going our way. That happens, right? Even though all those basic needs are met. We even know people who... Uh, don't have their basic needs met, and we just walk right by, all frustrated because things aren't going our way. Maybe you work with somebody who never expresses gratitude, never says thank you. Maybe you have somebody you know in your family who's like that. See, it's amazing how sometimes we can just throw gratitude by the wayside. So, uh, I know in my family, I don't know if you've ever done this at Thanksgiving, um, we sometimes will sit around the table. You got, you know, your turkey and stuffing and all that stuff sitting out there. We'll go around the table and say something that we're thankful for at Thanksgiving. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but 
it's taken me a long time to get comfortable doing that. Uh, I'll just kind of level with you here a little bit. I just, I don't know what it is about it, but sometimes it just feels kind of forced and fake. And maybe, maybe, I know a lot of people sometimes are giving genuine things they're grateful for. But there's always, you know, that one guy in your family who's sitting there and saying, thank you, Lord, for my new house and my new car and all this stuff that I have. And you know it's just pride that's coming through, and he's being thankful, you know, all that. And so I guess it's that aspect of it that just doesn't taste right to me. So maybe you've experienced that. Maybe not. Maybe just sometimes you find that people just start to brag um, rather than actually being grateful. I think... In other instances, we're often too quick to say thank you. I know I do this. If you've ever gotten an email from me, I say thanks at the end of like every single email that I send. Whether I actually mean it or not, it's almost like, it's almost like my email signature. I should just like change it from, like, from Brent Compline's long commuter to just thanks, exclamation point. That's like what I put at the end of every single email as it is. And I mean, I mean it sometimes, and other times it's just something you say, right? I think we do that often. So I think what we really need to, to, to look at, we need to ponder this idea of gratitude a little bit, dig a little bit deeper. I mean, at the core of everything, we have to ask this question, what am I really grateful for and who, to whom am I expressing my gratitude? Now, this passage talks about this man's gratitude. Now, the gratitude sort of, it's part of the process. He didn't start out with gratitude. It says that he had faith. And that it, now, this passage doesn't necessarily say that the other nine lepers didn't have faith. They had faith. I think what the passage is saying is that their faith was incomplete, in a way, because it didn't result in expressing gratitude. You see, I, I think gratitude is integral to faith. And I would argue that without gratitude, we don't have the right sort of texture on our hearts to let spiritual transformation, things stick to it. It's kind of like, like painting, okay? If you've ever painted something before, it's really important to prep the surface you're painting on. Because if you paint on something that's got the wrong texture, too smooth, or it's the wrong type of paint for it, eventually, I mean, it may look good right away, but eventually the paint just starts to chip off, starts to peel away, and it reveals that surface underneath that was always there that you were wanting to cover up. I think the same thing happens with our hearts. If you have a heart of gratitude, or maybe you have a heart of bitterness, if you have a heart of bitterness, things just aren't going to stick right. They're going to peel right off. You see, I think our capacity to love God is directly related to the depth of our gratitude. I think that's absolutely true, and this text is talking about that, that our capacity to love God is directly related to the depth of our gratitude. See, there's a deep connection. There's this organic deep connection between humility, dependence, and gratitude. You see, when we truly understand who God is and who we are, that's a humbling revelation. You see, depending on God is humbling. When we operate out of a sense of sort of dependence and humility, then we can truly express gratitude. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read from another part of the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 7. There's a, a story of a woman who meets Jesus in the house of a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee being a, a sort of a, an entitled, uh, law-following, religious elite guy. Let's read what this text has to say. It's kind of long, so I'll just read through the whole thing, and then we'll talk a little about it. So Luke 7, 36 to 50 says, 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I'd be a little scared if Jesus said that to me. Tell me, teacher, he says, you know, thinking he probably already knows the answer, right? Jesus launches into this story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So here we have a story of this sinful woman wiping Jesus' feet with her tears. It's just an incredibly moving story. And this Pharisee rebukes Jesus. He says, what are you doing? If you, if you were really who you say you are, you would know who this woman was. Jesus commends the woman for her love and gratitude because she'd been forgiven. I think this story perfectly illustrates the difference between a bitter heart and a grateful heart. See, the Pharisee's bitterness is being exposed while this woman's gratefulness is being exposed. Now, what kind of bitterness does this Pharisee have? He feels like he's earned God's favor, so Jesus should feel privileged to be in his presence. Now, in contrast, this woman knows that she is nothing. She has nothing to prove. She's just grateful to be in Jesus' presence. You see the difference? This woman was actually able to express love because of her gratitude. She seemed to have this higher capacity to love God because she understood where she was coming from and how much was forgiven. It's just like Charlie in the chocolate factory, okay? He understood where he came from, his background, his impoverished family, that he was not entitled to be there. He didn't deserve it. All the other kids are like, you should feel privileged to be with me. Charlie says, no, I feel privileged just to be here. Uh, I've been sort of pondering this this week. I've, I mentioned this last week. I, I've, I'm a father now, and if you've ever held an infant, if it's like yours or if it's a family member's or friend's or something like that, you understand the utter sort of dependence of an infant. 
I mean, they literally can't do anything by themselves. I mean, they breathe, I guess, but you have to feed them, you change their diapers when they go to the bathroom, you have to literally hold their head up. I mean, they're 100% dependent on, your, on the parents or on a caregiver. I think this has sort of changed my perspective a little bit because I was in that place once, and so were you. Utterly and completely dependent on another person. You started your life in 100% dependence. And it's interesting, you know, throughout raising kids, you're sort of trying to teach them independence all the time. I mean, it's interesting to see that maybe we should be teaching our kids, of course, some ways to be sort of self-sufficient or whatever, but to be, instead of teaching them to be utterly independent, to teach kids how to be transferring their dependence from sort of their parents to God. Being dependent, you were designed and created to be dependent. I said this last week. Operate out of that design. I think I'm more grateful to my parents now that I'm in their shoes. Because I understand the dependence I had on them. I understand the humble beginnings I had. I understood, I understand now a little bit better what it means to understand our own weakness, to understand our dependence. You see, I think when we truly understand our weakness of where we came from, then we understand our dependence, our place under God, then we can truly express gratitude. So how does gratitude affect our discipleship? This is where it kind of, let's get some action points in there. Where, how, does, how, does, how does gratitude affect our discipleship? A life of gratitude makes us whole. It, it, it allows us, it, it unleashes us to love in a way. You see, the foundation of our gratitude, the foundation of it, is the fact that God created us. He created us, and even though we'd gone astray, He redeemed us through Jesus on the cross. That's where we came from. You see, we can start to express gratitude to God for what he has done when we first recognize our own sinfulness and inability to save ourselves. That's the basis that we express gratitude from. Then and only then will we be able to express true gratitude to God because as we see in this text, this man who was forgiven, forgiveness unlocks gratitude. That's the key. It's not something you sort of, like I said with faith, it's not something you will yourself into. Forgiveness unlocks gratitude. Forgiveness through Jesus unlocks this man, this leper's gratitude to God. And then his gratitude unleashes love and praise to God. You see his sort of process of how he goes through this whole thing. He's forgiven. He's healed. He comes back to God and offers praise out of his gratitude. I think in this passage, if we look at this passage as a whole, I think Jesus is teaching us that the appropriate response to God's grace is gratitude. The appropriate response to God's grace is gratitude. See, when we really grasp the incredible grace of God, when we grasp it, the grace of God through his Son we're broken of their sort of prideful, self-saving attitude. When we comprehend God's forgiveness, we're humbled to the point of gratitude.
God desires that we give him thanks. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do that together. We're going to express thanks and gratitude. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, I'm going to start us off with a, a, a little a prayer and sort of kick, kick this off. And what we're going to do, we do this from time to time here at Salon Community Church. If you're new, um, feel free to jump in if you want to. But what we're going to do is that we're going to have a one-sentence kind of beginning of the prayer up here. And what I want you to do is just offer up sort of a popcorn prayer, just one sentence out loud. We'll all sort of bow our heads. I'll kick us off with a word of prayer. And then just... Just, just launch out with these one-sentence things. Lord, I'm grateful for. Keep it God-centered. You know, this isn't a time, like I said, at the Thanksgiving table where you brag about something. Say, say something about God and what you're grateful for that he's done. Let's do this together, and let's express our gratitude to God as a congregation. I'll pray uh, to start us off, and then I'll also close at the end with prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that we are nothing, that in our, in our weakness, in us being utterly hopeless and being apart from you, that you, in your grace, have saved us. Lord, that's the posture we operate out of when we express thanks and gratitude. Lord, we want to offer up just a, a flood of praises Lord, we want to just offer up our gratitude and express it to you. So, Lord, I'm grateful for your gracious forgiveness.
Lord, hear our prayers of gratitude. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful for his life, death, and resurrection. The power of God, the unfailing love of God, his covenant steadfast love expressed in Jesus Christ. Just, we're thankful and grateful for the gospel. We're thankful that even though we were sinners, that Christ died for us. Or that's what we are grateful for. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move to uh, a time of communion, we're going to continue